chapter 13. Lord, as we look into your word today, we do so as a people who um, can easily become overwhelmed at the thought of seeing other people come to Christ and how we fit into this idea of evangelism. So we pray that you would help us, Lord, to think uh, more um, clearly about the greatness of you and your truth, your Holy Spirit, and the way in which you work in this world through people who are not perfect, but who are redeemed and rescued from their own sin and who are set on a mission. We pray that you be honored and glorified as we look into your word this day. May we see Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You know, farmers have a few things that can really help us when it comes to the idea of this, this uh, concept of spreading the gospel. You know, Jesus and the New Testament writers referred to and alluded to farming a number of times, as, as Walter again uh, commented, that he talked about the spreading of seeds. There's, there's these mysteries, there are these challenges about gospel ministry that oftentimes come back to farming and farmers and people who are involved in sowing seeds into the ground. Yes, farmers who plan to grow a, a, a very abundant harvest will often follow a repeated strategy. It's very simple, right? First of all, they're going to carefully plant quality seeds at the spring or the beginning of the growing season. And then they're going to distribute those seeds over a large, flat area in which the, that area, which the seeds will then receive direct, lots of direct sunlight. They're not going to plant a lot of seeds underneath a tree somewhere uh, that gets constant shade. Uh, then they're going to also evaluate. A good farmer is going to take time in the off-season to evaluate the previous harvest and to develop a well-thought-out strategy for next year's plantings. Does it make sense to continue and do exactly what I did the year before? And then lastly, they were going to not allow the concerns and fears about plant disease or insects or floods rob them of the joy of farming and seeing the wonders of uh, crops growing every year, year after year. Well, let's look now in our book of, uh, in the book of Acts. We've been studying this book and we've been seeking to try to understand important and practical principles about gospel ministry as they occurred in the early church. Now, we know that the experience of these early believers was unique in some ways. We grant that. So it's not exactly what we're going to copycat everything we find here, but we can gain some practical insights into God-honoring gospel ministry. And if you have your Bible, you open there to Acts chapter 13, page 1314 in your pew Bible. We're looking and uh, picking up from what we looked at last week in which we considered the first missionary journey of this powerful duo, it ended up being a duo, first it started off three guys, now it's down to two, with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they've been sent out from a rather large uh, urban church in Antioch, the city of Antioch, in Syria, which is the north of Jerusalem, if you will. Um, And they've been sent out, and now this couple uh, of missionaries have now traveled hundreds of miles to the west, then they went straight north, And they've come into another urban area called, guess what, Antioch. Another Antioch. And this one is a city in the region of what we would call the larger area. It was called Galatia. And more specifically, it was in Pisidia. 
Now, these are two Jewish followers of Jesus who are going to be proclaiming Jesus, the Messiah, and they did so to a group of Jews who were gathered on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and we're going to pick up what happened next in verse 42 of chapter 13. Beginning in verse 42, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, that is out of the synagogue on that first day that they preached and made a message there, um, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And when the meeting in the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Now, I think that might be a little bit of a use of hyperbole. Uh, the city had a population of about 100,000, so I'm not sure everybody showed up, but I think he's saying a vast number of people uh, showed up there. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you since uh, first, since you repudiated it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And thus the Lord has commanded us, and he quotes now from Isaiah 49, I have placed you, that is Israel, as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But when they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now I was going to suggest that we look here in this text, there could be many things we look at, but I want to try to boil it down to four principles on farming. Farming in the sense that we're looking for principles on laboring for the harvest of souls. And this is what these individuals are doing here in this text. The first thing I want us to notice in this text is that in order to labor for the harvest of souls, we must sow only quality seeds or the best seeds that you can find. Only quality seeds. One of the most fundamental principles of gospel ministry is the necessity of declaring the biblical gospel, not just a made-up gospel, not just uh, human words of encouragement or hopefulness, but notice that Paul and Barnabas, as they spoke to that crowd there in the synagogue, they didn't bring a self-help message. What they did, and you notice in verse 27, Paul quoted Old Testament prophets. He reminded his listeners of the gospel promises God made in the Old Testament. And he concluded there, look in verse 41, with a biblical warning. He told them, don't dismiss this message of the good news. Don't dismiss this fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one true Messiah, that through faith in him, sinners can find full forgiveness. It is through Jesus the Messiah that sinners can find freedom from the condemnation that comes to those who what? 
who break God's laws. They're speaking to their audience in compellingly honest and biblical terms. And some of the people who heard Paul's message, of course, sensed that his compelling biblical message was not the typical kind of synagogue sermon that they're used to hearing. A sermon that would usually say, we're urging you as followers of the Jewish traditions to try harder. Try harder and harder to keep the laws of God. And we must be careful with these laws and we must do better than we did the last week. No more of those sermons did they hear when Paul and Barnabas arrived because Paul and Barnabas urged them to return uh, they, they said, we're, we're willing to come back next week. And so the various folks who heard it said, well, come back. We want to hear more of this. Why? Because they heard the Word of God. They heard the truth of God for the first time, perhaps in a way that they really began to understand it in a powerful way. If you look at verses 42 to 52, that's 11 verses. How many times, and I, I did this in my Bible, how many times do you find and underline the word or the phrase, the Word of God? The Word of God. It's found in verse 44, 46, 48, and 49. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of the Lord. It's the Word of the Lord. It that's the, seems to be very high, high emphasis, and, and, and Luke is, is drawing our attention to that. The Apostle reminded those various churches, after he had planted and started those churches, he wrote letters to many of those. That's the New Testament we have. And over the years, he came... And he would sow the seeds of biblical truth among them. And he mentioned in Corinth, to the church in Corinth, that the seeds that he brought among them was not a clever message. It was not something that, that similarly other people who are the philosophers of the day were bringing some sort of message about self-improvement or self-authentication or whatever else they were talking about at the time. He, he said, I brought the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, when I came to you, Corinthians, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's the approach that he brought. And Paul also wrote to the, Thessal the church in Thessalonica, reminding them of the approach he brought with them when he was casting seeds of the gospel among them. He says this, as, again, Walter alluded to this as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He says, I gave and brought to you the Word of God, and you received it as such. There are some today in our world who will float the idea, and it's not a new idea, it's been around for quite a while, that since the world is so morally corrupt, that since our world and the people of our world have such a low estimation of the Bible, and since we live in this postmodern world where people don't think there's such a thing as absolute truth anymore, then they think that we need to modify our message that we're speaking into this modern world. 
And so there's a well-known pastor, and it saddens me to report this. He is a pastor of a mega church in Atlanta, Georgia. If I gave you his name, you'd probably be familiar with it. But he has made some comments that have been rather startling, startling, startling in his movement in this direction in which he tends to echo what liberals have been saying about the Bible for years. He preaches some sermons in his mega church in which he never, ever quotes the Bible during the whole sermon. He said to his people, we do not believe Christianity because of the Bible, he says, but we, be, we believe Christianity because of the resurrection and the eyewitness testimonies. Well, that sounds nice, but guess what? How do you know about a resurrection? It's the testimony of eyewitnesses that was recorded in Scripture. How does one know Jesus died and was raised from the dead? The Bible says what? The gospel is this. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The same pastor then goes on to say, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. But let me just say to you, my friend, that's not a good analogy because what? Because what is Christianity if, we, if it's not for the fact that it is constructed upon the Word of God. It is not my opinion, it's not your opinion, it's not my experience or your experience, it is the truth of God that we are, are, are changed by, yes, it does affect how I live, how I deal with other people, I, I hope and pray to God, but it also is truth that is from God. This is announced, we are declaring from God. This is what God has done to rescue sinners from their sins. Jesus taught a parable in Luke chapter 16, that was quite stunning, in which he depicts a man who uh, dies, a rich man who, in the minds of the first century there, they thought that anyone who's rich was very on good terms with God. And so the parable goes on to say that this rich man ends up in hell. He's suffering. He's in misery. He's cut, cut off and at a distance from God. And this man, in his conscious, conscious suffering, says to Abraham, Listen, would you, would you please send to my relatives a messenger, someone who from the dead who can tell them what they need to do so they can avoid being here. And the response given to them in Jesus' parable is this. They have Moses, and they have the prophets. They have the Scriptures. Let them hear the Scriptures. And if they do not listen to Moses, and they do not listen to the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I often wonder myself, I wonder how, what percentage of people reject the Christian faith and do so without ever having read one gospel in its entirety. They, they have created in their minds certain assumptions about Jesus and about Christianity based on who knows what. And sadly, it's sometimes based on other Christians, and that's a shame because that's not very helpful to them at all, sad to say. But they've never really read what Jesus actually said and claimed. They've never read the eyewitness testimonies of what they saw and, and they, indeed Jesus did. And yet they have unfortunately cut themselves off from the source of truth. And so the scriptures are sufficient for salvation. The scriptures are sufficient for evangelism. 
And so being armed with Scripture, which is Walter was able to share verses that he'd already memorized, that empowers us to be able to share that with other people. And it's one of the reasons why I really like and have always admired the Christianity Explored course that we've offered in our church in the past. We'd love to offer it again if we had some interest in people that would like to attend. One of the reasons I like it is because it goes through the Gospel of Mark. And throughout the entire lectures, every time there's a, a DVD you're watching, there's Scripture on the screen and quoting the verses of Scripture about who Jesus is, what He said, what Jesus indicated is the truth, and not just commenting about what you and I think. It's about what the Scripture and what the Word of God teaches. Well, we need to have quality seeds. We need to know the truth of Scripture. Secondly, we need to sow widely. Sow widely seeds of the gospel. Here are Paul and Barnabas sowing this gospel seeds among what? Well, they started with sowing it among their own Jewish brethren, right? People who are, share their similar background, people who share a similar cultural um, uh, understanding. And this first weekend, they attended the synagogue service. The second week then, they attended another synagogue service. And soon thereafter, they're running into what? All sorts of resistance. Many people who were not Jewish in their background heard the truth and began to embrace by faith Jesus the Messiah. They began to understand and begin to receive as their own Messiah and Savior and Lord Jesus of Nazareth. And that is contrasted in this text with another group of people who have heard about the Messiah, who are familiar with the Jesus who has already come and has been crucified, but they've rejected him. There's this contrast that's going on. And some have questioned why Paul and Barnabas at that point changed their strategy of ministry. Many of the Jewish citizens there in Antioch and Galatia viewed the Gentiles with great disdain. You must understand that. Jewish people at that time had been sort of given the tradition that we have nothing to do with these people. They are those who are cut off from God. And so they, they just viewed them with a racial animosity and hatred that was uh, really an awful thing, a great deal of prejudice in their hearts. And here they are with hearts filled with this prejudice toward non-Jews. And then look at verse 45, which, which we get an indication of their response now to a large number of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus the Messiah. How do they view that? They are filled with jealousy. They are thinking, no way, this cannot be. This is our Savior. The Messiah is our Savior. And Paul's response was to remind them that from the beginning, it was God's intent that the Jewish people would be a light to the world, and that includes all of these Gentiles. And so he quotes, and we read that verse, Isaiah 49, 6. And interestingly enough, never was it ever God's plan to provide salvations to the Jews alone. That was never God's intent. That's what Paul is trying to say there. You folks are missing it here. From that point on, Paul and Barnabas made it very clear that in their practice, they're going to, yes, continue to place the, the gospel before people of their own background and their own traditions as the Jewish folk among them. They'll go give them the gospel first. But then when they reject that message of Jesus, the righteous Messiah, 
when they reject the message of here is one who is perfect, who kept the law perfectly, who died on that cross as a substitute for sinners, who failed to keep God's law, and who was raised from the dead, this message is saying he's the only one who can provide forgiveness of sin, the only one to give a heart, a new heart, and to give us new desires, and to make us into new creations. If you're not going to receive that message, we're going to move on now to the Gentiles. And so from that I understand it's a good idea to share the gospel, obviously with people who are like us, with whom we have natural affinity, people who are sort of in our little world, people who have a similar background, a common understanding. We share the gospel with our friends, with our family, our neighbors. But at some point it's also important and helpful to remember there's a much broader circle that it's appropriate to be involved in in sharing our faith. There are people that uh, we are seeking to reach that are totally different from us. And there's a woman I'm trying to get to know now at the uh, pharmacy uh, at Walmart who is from Bangladesh. And she and I are starting to have longer conversations each time we talk. And I get awkward because people behind me, I'm sure, are tired of seeing me wait uh, as, as I'm holding up the line, but she keeps talking to me. But the point is the circle begins to go wider and wider because there are many people who are longing to hear truth and no one's telling them. And so we need to so widely. You never know. Thirdly, another principle we find in this text is that we are to sow boldly gospel seeds. And we do so with discernment. We sow boldly and with discernment. The gospel invariably causes offense. This exclusive offer of free and full reconciliation to God through the one and only mediator between God and man, it is Jesus Christ, that is going to cause and be a stumbling block to many people. The call to die to self and to take up one's cross and to follow Jesus is not going to necessarily be a popular message for many people today. Some people, in hearing the claims of Jesus, because Jesus talks about hell. It's not something I made up. It's not something you make up. Jesus speaks of hell. Jesus speaks of, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. Some people are going to not only disagree with it, they're going to actively oppose gospel proclamation. They're going to oppose gospel ministry. Paul and Barnabas, they ran into some of the Jews, not all, some of the Jews contradicted their message. They, they began to, to say things exactly opposite of what Paul and Barnabas were saying. But they went further than that. They didn't just throw a, a rebuttal to them. They were determined to shut them down. They were determined to so take action to force them into silencing them. To falsely accuse them sometimes, that would work. To make up things about people who are followers of Jesus, you make up some way in which you exaggerate what they said or their, or their allegations or say they're full of hatred when that's the, the farthest thing from the truth in the world. You allege some sort of infraction and what happens? Well, then they become the object of persecution. I find it I, so ironic as I read this text of... What happened to Paul here is exactly what Paul was causing to happen to so many other people. Do you realize that? Paul had been the one who was 
reacting in the way of becoming offended and, and resisting and, uh, and, and refuting, and then he would have what? He brings actual physical and violent reaction to those who were bringing the gospel. Matter of fact, they describe him earlier in the book of Acts as like a wild animal. He was just out of control. And so Paul is not surprised, and therefore he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Let's turn there just for a second. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 to 12. He's writing to a man who's a little intimidated about ministry, who's a little bit timid, timid Timothy. He's lacking in boldness for the gospel at times, and so Paul's trying to encourage him to not uh, be so timid. And he says uh, in verse 10, But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at where? Antioch. That's where he's talking about right now. That's what we're looking at in Acts 13. Antioch there in Pisidia. And Iconium and at Lystra, which is we're going to get there in just a minute, in, just, in the weeks to come. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That joins up with what Jesus said, didn't he? If they hate me and they persecute me, they're going to hate you and persecute you. John 15. And how did Paul and Barnabas respond to all of the blasphemy, all of the opposition that came their way? Look at verse 46, back in Acts 13 now. They spoke out boldly, and they kept on speaking. They spoke out boldly and kept on speaking. Gospel ministry requires boldness. And for some of us, boldness is thought of as something that is you know, we think, well, that's part of my personality. Some people just have that kind of personality. They don't seem to be intimidated talking to anybody about anything, and that includes their faith. But I assure you there's more to it than boldness, than, than that kind of personality trait. Boldness, I believe, is a trait that the Holy Spirit must inculcate within us. Believe it or not, Paul was not by nature a bold apostle. You say, oh, come on. The Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this, the one who was speaking like that, the one who went and was persecuted so many times? Yes. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't believe me, here it is in his own handwriting. Ephesians 6, if you know what I mean. These are his own words. Uh, Paul says that part of spiritual battle is that there's a need for prayer. Prayer is an important element in, in spiritual warfare. And then he goes on to personalize it and says, Pray on my behalf, Ephesians 6, 19, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I need prayer to make sure that I speak boldly the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. He knows, he knows the consequences of what has happened when he spoke the truth. He's been arrested and beaten and uh, hit with rods and all those kind of things, stoned. And in proclaiming the gospel, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What's he saying? He has moments where he begins to say, ah, I'm not sure I'm going to tell everything that really needs to be said here. 
We see the same struggle of the, of the apostles early on, facing threats and imprisonment in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, if you recall, there they were threatened, say, stop preaching, stop saying what you're saying. And what did they do? Under threat of imprisonment, they prayed to God, Acts 4.29, and they prayed for boldness. And how did they get boldness? They were filled with the Spirit. How did they get filled with the Spirit? They're reading the Word. The Word becomes a part of you. Your promises that God makes are promises that you claim. You rely on the Word and not your feelings. Now, I wonder, do you ever pray for boldness? Why not? It's biblical. Paul asked for boldness. We admit we need boldness. Let's pray for boldness. That's a good thing to be asking for. And boldness, I believe, is the fruit of unfettered confidence in Jesus. That we are treasuring Jesus for who He is, reminding ourselves of the greatness, the awesomeness, the wonders of who Jesus is, the treasure of our heart and soul. And we're also remembering who we are in Jesus. And that'll give you boldness, my friend. You don't need the approval of other people if Christ has made you approved by the Father. I find it interesting to know that uh, in, in 1st, 2nd Timothy chapter 4, again, these are Paul's words at the end of his life. He writes about a time in which he knows that he's never been abandoned by Jesus in the midst of all of his hardships and difficulties and persecutions. He writes this, At my first defense, 2 Timothy 4, no one supported me. In other words, everybody said, Oh, I don't know who Paul is. I don't want to stand there and give, give defense with him because I might get in trouble myself. No one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might here and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth I don't think he means they're literally the mouth of a lion I think he means that's a metaphor for very dangerous situations life-threatening situations what's he saying when we're confident that Jesus is with us that he is in us that he is for us that is the beginning that is the beginning seeds of boldness in our life and we're not in need of man's approval in order to gain our sense of importance. Through the gospel, we are accepted by God through Christ. And that's why, if you'll notice in our notes, I gave you a quote from Dottie Lewis, who says, Sometimes we need to stop praying for opportunities to evangelize, but for boldness to use the opportunities God is giving us. So let's do that. And let's trust that God indeed will use us for his glory. Last thing I want to say here in this text uh, is a very interesting point here. Point number four is we are to sow confidently with joy. Confidently with joy. As farmers sow their seeds every year, they are confident that those seeds that they've planted are going to grow, that they're going to reap a harvest at the end of the growing season. In the, in the fact that they are confident, that they are so confident that they take the responsibility and the time to make sure they're planted correctly. And by the way, I was reading up on that this week. Do you know there are machines that drill seeds down into the ground just the right distance for that seed? And the machine does it just so perfectly, and it goes on and on, what, for acres and acres and acres and acres? It's amazing to think about how many seeds are planted by farmers every year. But anyway... Um, there are other factors, of course, beyond the planting of seeds that farmers are responsible for. 
in terms of the size of the crops and how much they actually reap. That's beyond the farmer. He can't control some of those things, but he can control how properly and at what time he chooses to plant those seeds. And as we are people planting and sowing gospel seeds, we must guard against the danger, it seems to me, of evaluating how well we are doing with our planting of seeds. Sometimes we evaluate our effectiveness by the size of our harvest. How many people have actually responded? How many people have prayed with us? Some sort of sinner's prayer. May I remind you that successful evangelism is not determined on the basis of the response that we receive. That our responsibility is to clearly and accurately convey and make known what God in Christ has done for sinners and to call those sinners to faith and to repentance when it's the right time to do so. In other words, we don't just, as Walter said, to walk up to somebody and just uh, throw that at them and say, okay, what are you going to do? Uh, receive it or not believe it, you know? There's a sense of which we, over time, we share and that truth becomes known to them. But once we have clearly and very carefully and biblically made it clear, then we've done what we've been called to do. We certainly want to follow up. We want to continue to answer questions. We want to pray. But that is to be a faithful gospel witness. And here are Paul and Barnabas proclaiming the gospel clearly and accurately, and yet some people reject the gospel. Others respond in true faith. Others respond with true repentance. Look at verses 46 to 48. We can learn a number of things from these verses. One thing we can learn here is that God holds those who reject the gospel responsible for their rejection. For example, some of the Jews there who rejected the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the word used here is they cast it away. They, they deliberately discarded it, threw it behind them, said, oh, I'm not, that's, that's a bunch of baloney. They definitively refuse the author of salvation in Christ. And so in doing that, they are responsible for that decision that they made. John 3.18 is helpful in this regard. John 3.18, you know, you know 3.16, but 3.18 says, He who believes in Jesus is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the real issue in which people are going to be judged on, whether they believe or didn't believe. But then notice the text also says in verse 48, that everyone who does respond in faith does so as one whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life. That what we see here taught in this text is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is taught in the Scriptures. It's all throughout. You can't escape it. That everyone who responds in faith is a person who does so in keeping with the gracious, sovereign work of God in election. That is, all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, look it up, Revelation 13, Revelation chapter 20, those people will be saved. They are chosen of God. But all those who reject Christ are condemned, not because they were not chosen, 
but because they have refused to believe in, God, in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Because they have judged Jesus as not worthy of their devotion. So what we see here in this text is we see affirmed two important principles that to us seem like they do not fit together. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. They are here in this text. They make sense to God, but to us they seem contradictory. But I'm just telling you what's in the text. There are some people who, because they judge Jesus as worthless and they dismiss him, they will be held accountable for that on the day of judgment. Maybe you've heard the story and there have been many stories over the years. I just Googled a couple of them. There's a guy who purchased a painting from a thrift store. I don't know how much he paid for it. It couldn't be more than $5, $10, right? And uh, have you ever seen artwork in a thrift store? I mean, it's not, it's not that impressive normally, right? Well, anyway, this particular one is a little bit tattered. And um, it's entitled... Magnolias on Gold Velvet Cloth, which is an excellent description of exactly what it is. If you've ever seen magnolia blooms, it's just laying there on this gold cloth. Well, the guy had it in his house, and he used it to cover up a big hole in his wall for 10 years or so. Come to find out, fast forward 10 years later, he's playing a game called Masterpiece. I don't know if you've ever played the game. I don't think they make it anymore, but it's the idea that there are these pictures of artwork, and you are sort of offering to uh, buy them, and then if you land on a certain thing, you can sell it to the bank, and you can make a lot of money on it. There are other, uh, doc other items in which someone might want to buy a, a piece of artwork from you, and it could be a fraud, worth nothing. It's a forgery. That's the way the game works. Anyway, this guy looked on one of the cards, and there's the image from his painting that's on his wall. So he goes and takes it to an art dealer and says, I'm just curious. Is this, what, does this thing have any value? The guy looks at it, he authenticates it as being painted in the 19th century. And guess what? For probably a price he paid of 10 bucks or 5 bucks, the painting was sold to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston for $1.25 million. Okay, what's the point? Someone at some point estimated and judged that artwork to be what? worth nothing donate it to the thrift store and here's a guy that bought it thinking, oh, no, no. but then it ends up being something extremely valuable the same is true in the spiritual realm my friends there are some who judge jesus and say eh, i don't get it i don't buy it i don't want it and as we continue to make gospel known we are to just be faithful in continually sharing it patiently talking, explaining things to people, yes. But our confidence in making the gospel known is that God's word does not return void. It is God who has promised to build his church, and everyone is accountable. Everyone's responsible to God for whether they reject Christ as Savior and Lord. No one is going to say on judgment day, I was not treated fairly. No one on judgment day is going to say, I wanted to be in the kingdom of heaven, but it was refused to me and the door was shut in my face. It's not going to say it, my friend. The truth is, they will say, I know what's best for me. And I don't need Jesus. I like to live my own life. I like to have my own rules. I want to be my own God. That's what they're saying in the misery of hell. Read uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. He makes that point very clearly. 
The joy we have in sowing the gospel seeds is that we do so not striving to attain right standing with God. It's not something we have to do in order to make us become more acceptable to God. But we do so as people who are filled with the wonder of knowing that God would choose unworthy sinners, undeserving rebels like you and me, and that he would love us and adopt us and make us God's children. And the unspeakable joy of sharing that with other people who are undeserving sinners is the greatest offer ever this world has ever heard of by the greatest person for the greatest price. Let's keep sowing gospel seeds. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we consider once again the wonders that you would deal with us in grace, that the gospel would be given to those of us who have had the opportunity to hear of Christ. Many of us have heard about him ever since we were young. Others have begun to hear of him uh, in our young adult life or in our adult life. Lord, thank you for those that you've used to bring the gospel into our lives. And now I pray for those of us who are privileged to be your children, your ambassadors. Help us, Lord, to, to be faithful, to be filled with faith and hope and love for those who are lost, to not look down on them as people who are um, who create offense to us, but Lord, help us to see them through your eyes with compassion, remembering that we too were blind and in our sin. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be clear, making sure that we preach the real gospel. Help us in our words to match them with acts of kindness and concern and love for other people. Help us, Lord, to be people who see the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our own lives, to see the fruit of the Spirit in us, and to see some measure of what the image of Christ looks like. We pray, Lord, for anyone who's here today who's never really embraced the gospel, Lord, help them to understand it's their decision to either choose or to reject it. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone who's hesitating, that they would, even this day, come to Christ, to trust in Him, to receive Him as their personal Savior and Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.